Ah, much better. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. iPod falls from the apple tree. Screen cheats cheated. An ocean of respect. And Duke takes a leak. All this and more on This Week in Retro. Neil, you're back. I am. <laughs> I'm back. Fantastic. And I very much, very much enjoyed last week's show with Dave. Yes, that was good fun, actually. It was good fun recording. I hope people enjoyed listening to it. It was, yeah, it was a good show, I think. And the highlight for me was you listing off all of the games you have played. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, granted, there first-person shooters and of course there wasn't a single point of click adventure in that list uh but yeah just a few just a few and uh, good yeah yes. we all have our, our niches so i'm glad i've found one of mine yeah we do how's we do. the uh how's the cave openings going uh, cave openings are going great um it was a bit difficult last week because it was a, a double opening saturday and sunday so um you know a seven day week and then into the next week it's it's tough going so i've got to um you know make, make a few adjustments now and then um, and actually, <laughs> off the back of having Dave as a guest on the show and then having Dave as a co-presenter um, and enjoying it so much and him enjoying it so much, I think we've all come to an agreement, haven't we, that um, he's going to be a bit yeah. more involved. Yes, I think. Is he now what we call a permanent member of the team? I think so. I think so. And um, yeah, you know, as you just uh, you touched on a moment ago, you know, all those games that you completed were first person shooters. Dave seems to have a rich history in RPGs and things like that. You've got your Definitely. flight sims. Yeah. I've got the games that I like to play. And actually, I think if we bring Dave in uh, and, the, and the show evolves to have a third presenter or two, you know, when one of us can't mm. make it, um, it just it should just make the conversation a bit more rounded and a few more insights and uh, that charming Scottish lilt that he has can't do us any harm. So. <laughs> He does. I'm looking forward Who's to it. Who's going to write so, the subtitles, though, Neil? Uh, yeah, <laughs> good point, good point. Um, so we're going to kick that off as of, I think, next week. He's going to come and join us, isn't he? And we'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, that'd be cool. Good. Did so, He visited the cave, didn't he, when you opened? Did Dave behave in the cave? Dave behaved in the cave, yes. Uh, he's visited um, a couple <laughs> of times, once before we opened yeah. proper and once for a, a proper day. So he's seen it in action, and uh, it was very nice, nice to have him. And he bought a, a wonderful donation of... Big box games down, including the largest box of Age of Empires you've ever seen. I think it must be one of these like promotional boxes rather than a retail box because it's like it's, it is huge. I'll have to get it to show you in a future show. Um, so very generous of him, and he, he drove all the way down to the south of England from Scotland. So long old wow. drive and a big effort from Dave. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Cool. So what have you been Excellent. up to, Chris? Um, <laughs> what have I been up to uh, recently? Oh, well, actually, um, we uh, had the Perth Amiga Users Group a couple of weekends ago now, um, uh, and uh, that was good fun. Always is good, as I've always said, lots of different um, machines represented. But I've never won anything in any of the competitions, mm -hmm. and they have a raffle. So it's just, a, you know, $20, so £10 to enter the raffle. And there were some really nice, completely um, recreated Spectrum, ZX Spectrums, 48Ks. Even though I've already got a 48K, I would have loved one of these because obviously it's like having a brand new machine almost. Yeah. And they also had a couple of Commodore 64s. And we all know how little interest I have in the Commodore 64 purely because, not because I don't, you know, see, see it for, for what it is, but I have no nostalgia attached to it. 
you can guess what I won, Neil. You can guess what I walked away from. So, oh, but I, is it is I, it your I'm first actually, Commodore sixty four? Yes, and it's a bread bin. First Commodore sixty four. <laughs> it's a bread bin, and it's a is it an eighty five board or an eighty four board? Apparently, the, the the most common board and the one where all the chips are socketed, which is apparently a good thing. Something to do with cool. them failing. I don't know. Um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. so it's, it's a really good, and it was a really good package at once. So it was that. It has a data cassette recorder. It had four games, which are here next to me. So 1985, Skyjet, um, Speed King, and a brand new uh, game called Freaky Fish, which is okay. a you know a modern, modern C64 game. So I have already fired it up, had a play. Already very impressed, to be honest. Um, a lot of those games don't really show off the SID chip apart from the new one. But what I was impressed with was just the simplicity of setting up and of loading. The experience of loading a game from tape on the C64 already seems worlds apart from loading it on a Spectrum. And <laughs> our memories around that and having to balance the, the volume control to get just the right gain for it to load. C64, there's none of that. You plug it in, you press play and off you go. And generally, yeah, loads. Uh, yeah really there's good. also a lot of solutions available for an SD card um, alternative yes. for the C64, so it's well worth looking into those. Um, a place over here is called The Future Was 8 Bit. Um, they oh, do yeah. a very good solution, so I've got that on mine, so well worth a look. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, so well, congratulations on being a C64 owner. <laughs> Feel good. Congratulations is the word. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it does. It does. It's good. It's a machine I do need to spend some time with. And as you said, uh, SD card reader solution is the way to go. I've already got somebody that's got one lined up for me. Um, yeah. And because I don't have nostalgia, I'm not going to go pouring money into a games collection for the C64. So I'm happy to just experience those off of an SD card. Yeah. That's the right way to, to explore that machine, I think. And I did set you yep. some homework before I went, and I did listen to last week's <laughs> show, so I know that you did this. Um, so we, we don't need to go into it in too much detail, oh, no. but you enjoyed the delights of the game Neighbours on the Amiga. Have Enjoy you been back to it? is not the right word. <laughs> yes, I have, because I'd only played it for about 10 minutes when I spoke to Dave last week. So I have fired it up again, and I've played it for probably at least 20 minutes, but that's as much as I could stomach. Is there anything, is there any difference past the, the skateboard race around the block, as I would call it? Or is that as far as you've got, Neil? <laughs> I don't know, Chris. I've never played it. <laughs> <laughs> that's not funny right we're gonna get into the show do you think let's do it <laughs> okay chris it was big news this week um apple is discontinuing its ipod after 21 years of service and boy let's just reflect on that 21 years that makes me feel old because i remember the fanfare when this came out um i remember rushing out to get it this was in 2001 that it first came out and um Although it wasn't the first, there were there were others before it. There were um, there was the Zune is a is a one that everyone knows. Um, technically, I think the very first from a little bit of research was something called the MP Man F10, which came out in 1997. So there were there were plenty long before the iPod came along. Um, it is the one to which the brand name attached. You, you know, a bit like Hoover for your vacuum cleaning. Um, any MP3 yeah. player was kind of referred to as an iPod from that point onwards. And um, the first model, you could get about a thousand tracks onto it. And it, it excited me so much because it was the coming together of these technologies. So on the one hand, you had um, you had ADSL coming out around about then in, in the homes in the UK. But even before that, I was at uni in the 90s where uh, my student accommodation sat on a great big fat 100 megabit pipe. Um, to the internet 
Is that a Scotch egg you're biting into there? What have you got there? The pork I'll let pie you f- with lots of English pie. mustard on it. <laughs> so I had this super fast internet connection, you know, obscenely fast internet connection. Uh, Napster came along. So I was downloading a ton of MP3s. And this is Napster in its original form when it was all about the music. Listening to it on Winamp, of course, with all my visualizations. So really into discovering and enjoying music. And just as an aside, I must say, Anything that I downloaded that I really enjoyed on Napster, I did go out and buy on CD back then. Um, of course, just, you did. No, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not even joking here. I, I absolutely did, and I've, yeah. I've got a, a huge yeah. CD collection um, sat in my garage now, which really it, it's wasted um, because everything's moved to online platforms now, which we'll talk about in a minute. But um, mm. so it was this coming together of access to music like I'd never had before ripping music, downloading music, and building up this library, a large part of which I used to back up onto a 100 meg zip disk. (laughs) And then the iPod (laughs) came along and it was like, yes, this is how it should be done. This is, you know, large capacity. It looks cool. I loved the the interface on it, you know, the click, click wheel and everything, the way they'd done it. And it was dedicated to just playing music. And it had a headphone socket. Imagine that, an Apple mm. product with a headphone, so a three and a half mil headphone jack, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how times but, have changed. Um, but of course, a big part of it was not just the hardware, as desirable as the hardware was. It was the coupling of online services in the longer term to download the music through iTunes, sync it easily, um, and just bring together the whole package. It was all about ease of use as much as anything else. Now, um, I have a, a kind of love-hate relationship with it because of that that um that online service and the dependence on that i guess um so like i said i owned the very first which i loved i owned two was it the nanos just the tiny little white sticks two of those which oh, yeah. had no yeah. screen on i destroyed two of those because uh, they were pretty cheap actually and i used to use them for running and um they uh, <laughs> this is disgusting but i'd put them in my pocket and the sweat would destroy them after a, a, a small amount of time yeah so what i used to do was get some uh, rubber gloves put them in the finger cut the finger off and put that in my pocket that was my uh, this is not solution. sounding any better <laughs> um so yeah i had that um and then the touch models came along and all these other models came along that turned the ipad into a multifunctional device it was no longer just about playing music and that's kind of where I fell out of love with it because for me, it's, it's single purpose was more valuable to me than having something that was effectively an iPhone with no phone. It kind of, it lost its focus for me. It lost its magic. And also that constant feeling that you were being ushered into the walled garden of Apple iTunes. I know you could import your own songs into iTunes and everything, but they just tried to make it easier and easier and, um, to use their services. And of course, everyone adopted it. The mass adoption of iPods helped with music as um, music as a service, I guess, to become the model and to become the norm. And that's where we are now. So I've seen people on Twitter go as far as to say uh, the iPod single-handedly destroyed the music industry. Now, I think that might be pushing it a little bit far because let's not rose-tint the music industry before the iPod. There were plenty of people you know, taking advantage of musicians, um, taking a huge chunk of money with their, um, I guess, their stable of musicians. They were the Simon Cowles of the world who were and still are trying to do that kind of thing. So the music industry was in no way this lovely rosy garden where everyone was happy before the iPod. But I understand what people are saying. Um, 
Chris, uh, let's talk a little bit about your history with iPods. Have you have you ever had one or an alternative MP3 player? Ah, <laughs> oh, you know my uh, my history with Apple, as in com- almost completely non-existent. So no, I didn't have an iPod, and the reason being, and you've kind of covered it in what you've already said, there were cheaper alternatives, but they were they were kind of nerdy alternatives. So I'll get on to that, but. Yeah, I'm always one to look out for, you know, well, how else can I do this for cheaper? And one to go complaining about the fact that, well, this isn't the first device and why is everybody getting so excited about it? And what's with the hype when I've been doing this for a couple of years already? So, yeah, I was more into, well, in fact, by the time it came out, there, there were cheap MP3 players. I was certainly into turning my CD collection into a file collection, if we can call it that, by way of mm-hmm. you know ripping to MP3 from existing CDs. But I still have, a bit like you, I still have my CD collection. So, I've, I've, in fact, I pulled out a few from the boxes behind me just here because i keep i keep thinking i've got rid of everything from from my past but actually i've still got things like music because it's never sort of gone out of use does that make sense yeah yeah, yeah. it's not like i've 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 dumped it and then rediscovered it uh, uh because of nostalgia Music is something I've never got rid of. So, but you can see a sci-fi album. So very sort of um, into soundtracks. I love my movies. And so my music tastes are similar to that. Huey Lewis and the News, not because I liked them, but because Back to the Future. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, now, here's one. So there's not not a movie link, but a TV link. I won't go through all this part, but do you remember this, Neil? <laughs> is that Zig and Zag? It's Zig and Zag. I bought oh, the single. No. <laughs> <laughs> if only we could play that Mr. without Blobby getting next. a copyright strike. <laughs> no, no, Mr. Blobby. So the, these are mostly things like I've got uh, um, uh, Mission Impossible soundtrack, that kind of thing. Mostly movie soundtracks, The Matrix, James Bond themes. But yeah, just never got rid of my music and still actively use CDs, partially because the cars I tend to buy <laughs> have CD players in them. And even one of them that I've got in the garage, there's no easy way of, apart from one of those FM transmitters, there's no easy way of using anything but CDs. And ironically, the CD stacker that's in it has just packed it up. But anyway, so still actively use CDs. But MP3s, um, before we left the UK, I was already fitting uh, um, head units that um, supported MP3 on CD. So I was already putting, you know, 10 albums worth of CDs on a single data CD and playing music that way. I remember, in fact, the first DVD player I bought when DVDs were a new thing, and I got bored of playing them on the PlayStation 2, which was my first actual DVD player. I particularly, I chose this particular model of DVD player because it actually had an LCD display. So you could use it as a CD player without having to turn the TV on and it had MP3 support. So you could go through, you could set your folders out, and you could actually select through your folders, choose your track, and play music that way. So that was a really good solution as well. Um, so in terms of MP3, in, in, instead of the iPod, it was this kind of thing. So I, don't, I can't even tell you what brand it is because it's a – oh, yes, I can. It's a – will we get censored for this, Neil? Um, go on. It's a Dick Smith. This is a oh. Dick Smith MP3 player. So Dick, Dick just, Smith is surely, an Australian brand. Yeah. Dick yeah, Smith's just just rebranded that, haven't they? They haven't made yes, that. They've just rebranded. Absolutely. It, yeah. yeah. We could scratch that off and put Amstrad on. It would be the same yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> or Commodore. But that this kind of thing. I I think I remember buying three of these at once. I pulled this out of the drawer, particularly for this episode. I've no idea if it still works. I've left it on charge. 
there we go it's firing up now so it still works don't know how long that's been sitting in a drawer but it was because i think maybe my wife was asking about ipods because she'd heard other people talking about them and again once again i said nah there's a cheaper there's a better way and i pulled this out but <laughs> even though i have a um you know i was gonna say a love hate relationship with apple it's a hate hate relationship with apple Again, credit where it's due. What the iPod did well and why it became so popular was because it, it did, yes, there was other pieces of tech doing this, but, uh, but not for the masses. It was only for the, the tech nerds. And this kind of thing, really not comfortable to navigate through. Whereas one of my friends had an iPod. That's probably the, one of the few places I've touched one. It's the, the bigger model with the, the, you know, the rotary thing on the front, yeah. which wasn't actually a dial, but you just ran your finger across it and it would go through the menu. Just doing that, was a pleasing experience. It was. And because that's it was tactile. It would click, wouldn't it? It was. It sort of, yeah. Yeah. Oof. Just that little click and was it even a little vibration? I don't know, but it certainly I think felt was, like yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. And it just it felt great and it felt robust. And I know you were killing them with your bodily fluids, but you know, <laughs> generally they were they were extremely strong and, and they they took a lot of um, abuse and they didn't fail. Whereas something like this, I mean yes, this one's still working, but I doubt if this would probably not survive one of your jogging uh, trips, for example. <laughs> well, you say that. So, I've got yeah. one similar to that, which I do now use for running, mm. although it's been a while since I last went for a run. But, um, you know, you pick them up for under 20 quid now as a, a device that only plays MP3s. And people regard that yeah. as being, you know, just a, a cheap throwaway bit of tech now. Where with yeah, true. with it, with as much capacity on that in solid state memory as we used to get on the original iPod, so yeah, we, we've come a long way. Um, I love that you've still mm. got your CDs, and actually, I hadn't even considered that. I've still got something that's now kind of retro from back in the day that I never threw out. I just assumed I'd thrown away all of my old retro tech, but there it is—a whole library yeah. of CDs that can take me back to my, you know, preteen years. Even you know, the first <laughs> CDs I bought—they're they're all there. So that's awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the iPod did move us on to services like um, iTunes and Spotify and more recently YouTube Music and all of these things. And I actually really miss using CDs in my car, as stupid as it sounds, because I like that whole process of, right, I'm going on a trip. It's going to take me about two hours to drive. So I'm going to need, you know, oh, I don't know, five or six CDs. Let's go and carefully select the kind of CDs I want to listen to for this drive. It's got to be a nice mix. Can't all be the same kind of music. You know, making that decision, taking the time to do that, and then putting a CD in and enjoying it uninterrupted, unless you've got the, the traffic announcements turned on. You've got to turn those off. Um, <laughs> I really like that. But in the car that I've got now, uh, it does um, Apple CarPlay and also the Android equivalent. So you have to plug your phone into it to access services. There's, there's no CD player. You're not going to be putting CDs into this thing. And I find that listening to music now, my consumption of music on my commute, which is 35 minutes each way every day, so there's plenty of time to listen to something. It's very transient. You know, music just kind of wafts by on these services. I, I don't even register who the artist is or what the song is most of the time. Um, it's not a quality listening experience. And I kind of miss the excitement of discovering music and adding it to my collection and then putting it on the devices I want to use or taking the CD. I, I, I just, I don't know if it's an age thing or if it's a the way we're consuming music now. It's not, it's not a quality experience and I'm not appreciating music as much as I used to. Um, you know, I used to go to record shops. Um, I used to, 
I used to sort of say, I've got a 10 pound budget on my lunch break today and I'm going to pick a CD. And sometimes I'd buy a CD I'd never even heard of just based on the cover. Uh, And sometimes I get a nice surprise. Sometimes it'd be absolutely awful and I'd take it back and exchange it for something else. But um, (laughs) I miss those days. I miss it. Maybe I'm just too busy. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just a sort of a bit of a mixture of everything. Um, Mm. Yeah. But you've spoken to us a little bit about how you consume your music now. So is it mostly in the car for you that you consume music or how do you, how do you listen these days? No, some and some. So in the car, in a particular car that I've got, then it has to be CDs and I had to burn some CDs to, you know, sort of like you do make your own mixtape when I first got this car. Um, but the other two cars, the CD player in my Honda Civic, for example, is broken, ironically. So it's either the radio or it's um, it has at least got an AUX port, so I've taken to plug it oh, in yeah. my phone. And in in my wife's X Trail, it that's got Bluetooth. I fitted a new head unit to that. It still has a CD slot. I made sure I got one that still had a CD slot for when we want to use that, uh, especially for country trips and we want to just take some audio books or whatever. Because over here. If you take a country trip, you're going into the middle of nowhere. If you're streaming something from your phone, well, guess what? You're probably going to lose that connection anyway. Oh, good point. So, yeah. so it's a good idea to have either stuff backed up onto your phone um, as local files or something like a CD to listen to. But I have got into um, Spotify and I have got into just listening to music by YouTube as well. So, I mean, on my TV behind me here, in fact, if I'm just doing something at this desk, then I might be playing some 80s music videos in a playlist that I've set up on youtube and that's sure. how i would consume music at work maybe if i've got my headphones on i might be listening to some you know uh, retro wave or synth music or something like that just sort of background ambient stuff um to do that maybe, but maybe it's just a time thing you know you've found the time to yeah. to curate a playlist to enjoy through those services that, and it does come back to that and and same when i'm using spotify on my phone via bluetooth or even if i'm outside by the barbecue with a bluetooth speaker they are playlists I've created. And mm-hmm. some of them I've created based on, say, you know, pick a year and a, and a month that needs something. And I've actually looked up what was the top 40 in the UK, because obviously that's where I was at the time, and put a list together of the top 40 from a certain time period. Um, and then that's what I enjoy listening to from my Spotify playlist. Nice. So yeah, just well, doing things like that. Yeah. We, will, we will get back onto the topic of iPods shortly. But before we do, let's, I've got to ask this question. What was the last physical album that you bought? physical cd <laughs> the fact that i know the answer to this question doesn't bode well but <laughs> there is a reason behind it behind it mariah carey christmas hits or whatever it's called oh okay <laughs> the reason i bought it yeah so it wasn't that long ago but it was for an easy, evil santa gift for work <laughs> that's why okay but it was the first time i'd done evil santa which is where you steal presents of each other i just assumed we were meant to get a rubbish present so that's what i picked um what about yourself yeah so uh so you're sitting on a zig and zag cd but you thought it would be more evil to give them mariah carey and not <laughs> not zig and I'm zag not giving up zig and zag <laughs> i should look up what that's worth on ebay i reckon <laughs> uh, well i have tried to address these problems i've been talking about recently and um, instead of doing the sensible thing like you and uh, curating a playlist on an online service i've actually reverted to uh, vinyl records um not in a vinyl is better kind of snobbery kind of way just in a can i use this as a way to 
put myself in a mindset where I have to think about what I'm going to listen to a little bit more and when I'm going to listen to it. Um, so I found a little record shop called Holmes Music in Swindon, which conveniently has a retro video game shop inside it as well. So it's it's a great day out <laughs> to go to both of those in one hit. Cool. And um, yeah, I buy a vinyl record from time to time. So the last one I bought was called Bright Magic by Public Service Broadcasting. And um, uh, it's usually on a Sunday morning. Uh, unless I'm working at the cave, when I get to, you know, make a coffee, sit down, put a vinyl record on, let the morning sun come through the window and just enjoy that moment. So that's what I try to do. I say, not trying to be a vinyl snob in any way whatsoever. Um, that's just a little bit of me time that I've managed to find. And I'm enjoying listening to music in that way. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm going to try and do a bit more of going forward. But, of course, when you buy a vinyl now, they all come with a code for a for a download version too. <laughs> don't even need to take the record out to listen to it anyway i'm not a boomer i promise you uh the the ipod i think we can all agree um the the hardware itself has served us well um whether you're on board with the the itunes service and all of the the headaches that came with that or not um it certainly introduced music uh listening to music and consuming music in that way to the masses as you mentioned earlier so it's it's taken the music industry to a new place. Whether you think that's a good place or not, love to hear your comments on the subreddit. Come and visit us at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro and let us know your thoughts. Okay, this next story, Neil, um, the story I'm about to share with you, in fact, is is one I've thought long and hard about whether or not I should share it publicly. You know, you know how some YouTubers, they open up about something personal and while you appreciate the sentiment and the sharing, it kind of gets a bit awkward. You know that feeling? Yeah. Um, like when I, I get big chair out and have a big chair chat. Yeah. I know those yeah, ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, this isn't intended to turn into one of those, but we'll see how we go. Okay. You, you just let me know if I'm getting too personal here, Neil. Okay. But anyway. So it was around, I'm guessing, 1997, uh, maybe around 98. My wife and I lived in a two-up, two-down mid-terrace house in Tunbridge Wells near the industrial estate. So, you know, I'm talking UK, obviously. And we were into the N64 at the time, big time. We absolutely loved it, Um, especially Mario Kart, Beetle Adventure Racing, Diddy Kong Racing. But more than anything, it was GoldenEye, and especially multiplayer GoldenEye. And at the same time, I had a mate called Nick. In fact, it was a weird time when most of my mates seemed to be called Nick. So we'll call this one Nick C. And uh, he was living in a flat down at the bottom of town, uh, but his lease was up for renewal. So it just sort of worked out. We said, well, why don't you come and live with us for a while? You know, we've still got the spare room. That was that was where my PC was at the time, but I didn't mind moving that. So he became our housemate. And that was great because I got on with Nick. I got on with Nicky, actually. See, even my wife <laughs> was in this thing of all my friends being called a Nick or a Nicky. Um, but anyway, the good thing about Nick is, well, all my Nicks were great, but he was a huge gamer as well. So the three of us had great times up late at night playing N64 over and over again. Um, but more than anything, any of the other games, it was mostly GoldenEye that we were playing. But this is where it gets a bit personal, Neil. My wife and my mate they cheated on me, Neil. No. That's right. That's no. right. You, you heard me right. My <laughs> wife and my mate Nick, and it hurts to even admit this over, after all these years, Neil, um, but they screen cheated, Neil. Oh, That's what they did. Unforgivable. Yes. What did you think <laughs> I was talking about? Um, so, yeah, whilst playing split screen Goldeneye, they screen cheated. Um, before we get on to this, are you a screen cheat, Neil, or oh, are your eyes quite cheat. rightly fixed on your own screen 
you know, um, you know how Apache helicopter pilots are supposedly able to operate their eyeballs independently, like some kind of owl. I've heard legend. Um, you know, yeah. the, the, the legend is they can have one eye on the target and another eye on some part of the head-up display. Um, well, that's me playing Goldeneye. I've always got one eye on your screen, <laughs> just swiveling independently, looking at your screen, Chris. That's how I play it. Oh, <laughs> I'm avoiding the N64 if I come and visit the cave. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, in all honesty, I was as well. And, and you know, when people say, "Is it sc- is screen cheating cheating?" I say, "Well, look, it's just part of the way you play those games." So I'm actually. I'm into it. You know, I do the same. Um, but if it's intended as a network game and you're looking around at somebody's screen, um, then that's a completely different ball game. But anyway, the story that we're covering today, um, Sean Hollister has written an article on The Verge about a setup at the Computing History Museum where apparently they used $10,000 worth of hardware to fix the problem of screen cheats on GoldenEye. Um, and it was all part of an event set up by the museum uh, and a celebration of the game's 25th anniversary. So they set up four screens, so each giving a quarter of the N64's view and hence giving each individual player a screen of their own. Um, I'd imagine navigating the menus would have been a bit of a pain. Uh, but other than that, once you're in the game, you know the game would have had a new edge to it that it didn't traditionally have. I couldn't find details of what the $10,000 worth of equipment actually entails. Um, you're better on the hardware side, Neil. So there's there's a clip there. I'm not sure if you've looked at it yet. But I have, yeah. Can you work out this setup and, and what's involved? Well, I mean, you know, $10,000 is a really nice headline to put up there. We spent $10,000 on playing GoldenEye. It's a great headline. Um, <laughs> what you can see is there's four PVMs or BVMs there that, you know, so professional quality old CRTs that people are using. Um there's um, actually in the video, uh, the chap there mentions they've got £8,000 worth of kit just in the the little rack, the portable rack dedicated to creating the, the split of the screen and you know breaking it out to the four monitors. And I don't know if they're talking about modern day prices or, um, you know, original prices of this kit back in the day, but I've got no reason to, to question that it would have cost, you know, back in the day, £10,000 or $10,000 easily to get all that kit together. So... Um, I think it, yeah, I think it's a good headline, and I think yeah, it's an awful lot of kit. Whether you're looking at it in the modern day or, or um, retro prices, and um, yeah, it's it's all set up in this little portable rack, which it sounds like they've they've designed it in such a way that they can take it to events or they can move it around their museum um, exhibition space. So it's brilliant. I, I hope they use it for a long time to come because I think a lot of people will enjoy that. Yeah. I knew you'd know what you were looking at, so <laughs> that's good. Um, look, I'm sure they thought of this, but we were doing this back in the day. Not four screens, but two screens. So me and my mate Nick, Nick C, um, mainly to stop him from screen cheating. No, just because we wanted to see if it would work. What we did was we just had two CRT TVs, obviously, um, and we just had an RF splitter. So we're just using out the N64 to RF into an RF splitter into two TVs, both tuned in. So you get up, you get a signal to both TVs, obviously. And then this did make navigating the menus a bit of a pain, I must admit. We covered the top half of one screen with a bin bag, a bin liner, <laughs> the big, thick, plastic, black ones. You had to, like, double. Um, we, we, we just put it over at first and then realized that you could still see through it. So we had to sort of double it up as much as we could. <laughs> Covered it until we couldn't see through it very easily and then did the same with the bottom of the other TV. Literally, we did this and we would play GoldenEye that way. And in fact, what we would do is uh, 
we would actually go into golden gun mode. So basically it's one shot kills. And I tell you what, the adrenaline pumping action you got from playing GoldenEye, where you know every single shot is going to kill you. And the, the way it changed the strategy, just hiding down the bottom of corridors, waiting for a door to open or something like that. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, really good. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, even, even when you are screen cheating, what I used to do was I, I would get get a feel of where everybody else was in the map and then just stand against the wall. So even if they knew... Even if they looked at my this screen, they camp. wouldn't know exactly. <laughs> it's not camping. I just know when I knew they were coming towards me, just stare against the wall. They don't know exactly where I am. They get a rough idea and then wait for them to run past, pop up, <laughs> shoot them. So, yeah, that no, was good. Um, but very fond memories. Absolutely loved um, playing Goldeneye. Um, and I don't know if you've played the versions that came after. So you had a, a Goldeneye on the Wii. So it's not... It's like a complete remake or a reboot, if you can call it that. So even the single-player game is slightly different. But the multiplayer fun, they put some of the original maps in, and it's still four-player split screen, and it's just as much fun. And you can also play it on either the 360 or the PS3 in the form of GoldenEye Reloaded. So it's essentially the Wii version, but done with HD for consoles with HDMI. So you get a much mm -hmm. clearer screen, which is, of course, really good for... Um, four-player split-screen action on a large screen. Um, but yeah, even to this day, it doesn't matter what version of Goldeneye we play, uh, the wife still chooses Natalia, just an old habit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, and if my mate uh, it was around playing my mate Nick, he would no doubt choose Odd Job. but yeah. No, that's not, that's not that. a mate. There's no mate of yours if they're picking Odd Job. <laughs> no, we allowed it. Yeah, we had fun with Odd Job and messing about with paintball mode and big head mode and all of that in the originals. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, there's obviously multiplayer first-person shooters has, has exploded. You know, you think back to something like GoldenEye, where you had it on a console in your lounge, four controllers in one unit, and you'd have fantastic couch gaming fun. And it's expanded into what we wanted to have back in the day, but couldn't quite achieve it, which is, you know, now network play, but you don't have to pick your machine up and go around to a mate's house. It's done online. I can be playing against somebody else in Australia or somebody else in England or whatever. It's really exploded out. But there were so many other games that, that did it in four-player split screen. I'm thinking of things like Halo and Call of Duty and um, things like that. In fact, <laughs> there was... um. There was a mate's party over here. So a few years after we moved over here, obviously started to get a, a network of friends up. And we were into playing Halo, so the original Halo on the original Xbox, four-player yeah. split screen mostly. And this particular friend said, oh, I'm having this party. It's at a hall. I think it was like um, his 21st or something. And he said, we're going to have four Xboxes linked up. So I was majorly excited about this, <laughs> this event. So four Xboxes, four players per Xbox. We knew we had all the mates there. There was going to be his family and everything going around and sort of a buffet table of food and everything, but we were just going to sit at this Xbox table. That day, whilst cleaning my pool, I got bitten by a redback spider. So a redback is like is that a, a bad in one? A, in a, I don't know. In America, it would be a black widow. Oh, okay. That <laughs> so sounds bad. The, 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 <laughs> Yeah, it sounds bad. Um, so it was in my shoe. As I put my foot in my shoe to then go outside to clean the pool, suddenly my foot started feeling a bit weird. And anyway, long story short, let's not talk too much about the redback spider. Did have to go to hospital, um, but mainly to be checked out. And they explained, look, most people don't die. You'll be fine. 
if you start feeling sick, then maybe come in. We'll give you some antivenom, but we don't think it's a bad bite. I was bitten by the male, which is not as bad as the female. So it could have been a lot worse with the female. Um, But my main thought, and in fact, I said it to one of the nurses. I said, I've got a party to go to. (laughs) <laughs> am i going to be okay to go to this party because throughout this entire ordeal of having to go to hospital get this spider bite checked out am i okay am i going to die am i going to throw up whatever all that was grinding through my mind was there's four xboxes linked up at that party <laughs> I need four to players play Halo. Xbox, and i need to be there playing halo so i just love that kind of gaming in uh in first person shooters yeah what about yourself oh wow that's dedication um yeah and actually using halo as an example when you go to some of the retro expos now like play uh there's one um i don't know who it is that brings it along but they have this great big circular table set up with i think it must be 16 xboxes on that original xboxes or with the or with the tvs kind of sunk into the the display so you can just walk up to it and get involved in this massive death match and um it's great fun (laughs) however the last time i tried to play it i realized it's been so long since i played halo i i I just couldn't you know it didn't instinctively get the controls because Halo, especially when you're driving the warthog, it's it's a bit of a weird system. You're not steering the warthog; you're pointing it in the direction you want it to go. And it just takes yeah. a while to click back into that. So uh, I was getting destroyed by anyone and everyone there. Um, <laughs> but it was nice to see that. Um, something to consider on the setup that that we're seeing here in this example, where they've split the screen, is you're taking a regular screen, you're splitting it into quarters, and then you're stretching it out into each screen. So each screen has actually got a quarter of the resolution of a a normal screen doesn't mean you're getting any less because when the screen split into four anyway you'll just get in that corner so um it might look a bit muddy i'm not sure it didn't look too bad on the video i'd like to see it in person mm. I, I need to make a trip and go and see it on per- in person hopefully they'll have it as um, a semi semi-permanent setup for people to go and enjoy um so it'll be low resolution but i think you'd still have a huge amount of fun with it and no bin bags required so that's a bonus um yeah it does it does beg the question though doesn't it if only goldeneye had a link up cable to play with multiple n64s you know because it's so popular here i've got an n64 set up here on the biggest display that i've got with the most comfortable chairs in front of it and everyone goes for goldeneye and i must admit people enjoy it but a lot of people go Oh, that hasn't aged too well. And then they load up Mario Kart 64. <laughs> but everyone goes for the N64 and the four-player and the, you know, the couch it's co-op. Um, but, you know, imagine if we could link four N64s up and do it that way. Oh, that would be heaven. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It hasn't aged too well. I've actually got it here and um, I've probably tw- played it twice. Fond memories, but yeah, it's a hard one. And so is the N64 controller, I've got to say. When people bag it, I go, no, you can't bag it. It's fine. You just don't know how to use it. And then I try using it again myself and go, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the best design, was it? But anyway, thanks, Clem Fandango, for sharing this story on the subreddit. If you follow it through to the Computer History Museum's own page, you'll see that the event also featured plans uh, to play unreleased GoldenEye remastered for the Xbox 360. So not the one I mentioned, but a remaster of the original for the Xbox 360. And they also had dev talks by some of the original games team, including Martin Hollis, Dr. David Doak. Is that how you pronounce his name? And Brett Jones. Ah, nice. David Doak. Yeah. So, happy birthday, Bond. Our next story was submitted to the subreddit by listener Protech438. So thank you for submitting this. Even if you didn't see the story on our subreddit, you would have seen it elsewhere. It's a sad one. Uh, And it's all about... um, 
a software house here in the UK, which probably had one of the most recognizable and iconic logos, certainly in the 8-bit era going into the 16-bit era also. And that is that of Ocean Software. I mean, look at the Ocean logo and tell me that that isn't cool. Um, it really is to me. And the sad news this week is that the co-founder of Ocean Software um, has passed away. He goes by the name of David Ward. Ocean was originally set up by David Ward and John Woods. And the company was originally called Spectrum Games, which was created in 1983 and would go on to become Ocean. It was based in the north of England, up in Manchester. And it gave us games or um, home ports, which included Batman the Caped Crusader, Comic Bakery, Daily Thompson's Decathlon, Miami Vice, Navy Seals, Robocop, Whizball, The Great Escape, and many, many more. There's a huge list of games that came out of Ocean. Uh, so my first question to you, Chris, is what's the first game you think of when you see the Ocean logo? Well, look, the first game I think of is Batman, but I'm talking Batman the movie because, of you course. know... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the even even my Amiga box has got the Ocean logo actually on it. Well, the the Batman pack sleeve that goes over the top of the box. Um, so yeah, instantly that's what comes to mind. Oddly though, uh, the second one I think of is F twenty nine Retaliator. I, I don't know why that's the second one I think of, but well, again, is, I think it's because yeah, the logo it, just sticks out very prominent as on part the of that box design from bottom of the box because that was a DID yeah. design game written by did but published by ocean and you've got that. that's right yeah, it's yeah. quite an iconic box art with ocean at the bottom nice yeah good choice yeah that's right so yeah that, that one comes up second i've actually got an extensive list of 22 ocean titles that i have an intimate knowledge of from back in the day <laughs> um but after last week i don't think the listeners need to hear me rattle off another list of games um you know games that i've played so yeah. maybe, maybe we can add them to the show notes just as sort of sure. evidence but of the 22 that I've listed, though, David was actually producer of all but five of them. So, wow. you know, co-founder, yes, but, you know, producer as well. Um, researching games that Ocean published, and some were published under other names as well, uh, such as Imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, not only was the Batman pack that I had mostly Ocean in terms of the packing games, but so too, and I only realized this when researching for this, so too was my Spectrum Plus 3 Chartbusters pack that I had before that. So that came with two discs, um, and I've got them here just as a reminder. But that came with so one is it's branded Amstrad, but it's a plus three disc. But you've got games like Gift from the Gods, uh, Maelstrom, Nomad, Super Test One and Two. I don't think they are Cosmic War Toad. I'm pretty sure is an Ocean title. And then the Chartbusters disc comes with uh, Cobra, Short Circuit, Green Beret, which is also Russian Attack. Um, don't think Mutants was one, but The Great Escape is on there as oh, well. I remember the Chartbusters pack. Fu. Yeah. Can you hold it up? Yeah. It there? Oh, yeah. Sorry. It? Yeah. <laughs> I just had it mainly so I, I didn't forget there what was is. actually on the disc. I remember but, um, that. Yeah, that's Chartbusters. Obviously, these are repurchases. And that's the other one that came. Is, yeah. with the. I think that's the one that came with pretty much every plus three. And then the Chartbusters, you got that one thrown in as well. So again, without the, the actual plus three box being branded Oceans, the packing games certainly were predominantly from the Ocean stable. So hmm. yeah, game games I have fond memories of. I reckon um, Great Escape, spent a lot of time with that. Yeah, Kung Fu, definitely. Target Renegade on the Spectrum. Wet mm -hmm. Clamon on the Spectrum. Um, ones that I played both on the Spectrum and the Amiga would be things like Robocop and Chase HQ. Just uh, tell me. Amiga 
you, you mentioned RoboCop yeah. there. Now, I was yeah. always a bigger fan of RoboCop on my Amstrad CPC than I was on the Amiga. I felt the Amiga version felt like a bit of a sloppy 8-bit to 16-bit port, whereas the 8-bit version felt like it was pushing my machine to the max. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely fair comment. Although I, I enjoyed both, and that's why I've got it listed there under both. RoboCop, for me was one of those titles on the Amiga where I would just fire it up and listen to the music. I just absolutely love the the opening title music on that game. Don't know. Yeah, just one of those things I did with some games. Mm-hmm. Um, games specifically on the Amiga, Chase HQ 2 as well as Chase HQ. Um, Space Gun, we've discussed that one before, which was one of the few games compatible with the light gun that I had. New Zealand Story obviously oh, came with the Batman yeah. pack. It was a Taito game, but published by Ocean. Yep. Yeah, yeah. They got That's all correct. the licenses, yeah. didn't they, Ocean? It was all about they the They did, yeah. yeah. Same Operation Wolf, same thing. Yeah. So you got an arcade game and they got the license for the home port. F-29 Retaliator, we've already mentioned. Uh, it's a confusing title. The box art <laughs> and the planes don't fit each other. But anyway, we won't talk about that. But finally on the PC, and I grabbed this one off my shelf, um, TFX was one of the first flight sims I got on PC. Um, mm-hmm. Enjoyed that. Mainly the fact that the cloud, the way they did clouds, and you could break through the clouds and fly above them and stuff. But I've got this here. This was given to me when I first got back into, you know, suddenly wanting to play older computer games. A friend gave me a huge collection of PC games, and one of them, and the one in the best condition, was this. So this is F22 which is by DID, same people that did F29 Retaliator. But I'm, I'm hoping, I've, I've yet to actually fire this up. I need to install it. It's a hefty box, Neil. Oh, I a haven't good manual. I've done got a page count, yeah. but it's got a massive manual, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, have you played this then? I have. I played it back I've, in the day um, because yeah. there was TFX, there was EF2000, and then I think that came out after ah. EF2000. And then there's EF2000 another version Eurofighter, of that yeah. again, which has a lot of additional... Um, kind of ai-based mission generators and things like that they evolve it a little bit further again but um yeah i remember that being a good okay. one yeah 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 three three d effects support just, <laughs> that's right yeah i just haven't got because i want to give it some good time so i haven't got around to actually sitting down and and having a play with this but this is probably the latest like the last ocean title that i've got in my collection because i mean this is designed for windows 95 so i'm guessing it's around 1995 so when you think about the list i've just gone through as far back as what 1983 1984 all the way up into the mid 90s and that's when ocean was still publishing publishing titles so yeah yeah and that that game that you've just held up there it doesn't have the the big ocean logo on the front of it which is why i probably associate ocean a lot more with the 8 to 16 bit titles and less so with the the PC era going into the you know the mid 90s and onwards and something i also yeah. associate with ocean is uh, the art of a, an artist called bob wakelin who who made phenomenal art um up there with the greatest 80s movie posters that you see on video games it's just brilliant and um i don't know about you i used to go to my local video rental store and ask for the free movie posters and I'd put oh, them up in nice. my bedroom. And, you know, the, the the art that he did on these video games is right up there. If you think about the art for games like Grisor or Midnight Resistance or The Great Escape, which you've mentioned, which incidentally is the first game I ever emulated. Um, the Great Escape I used to play on an Acorn Archimedes. There you go, an Archimedes with a Spectrum emulator. Um, but, the, yeah, the art really stands out for me combined with the Ocean logo or oh, just just brilliant just holds its own so well and really grabs the attention and that's probably why a lot of their games sold so well because of the way they presented that box art whether the game was good or not you know oceans quality was 
you know, up and down all over the place, depending on the game you were buying. But um, they certainly mm. presented their games well. Uh, and they, they put out a lot of games. And yeah, like I said, they didn't always get it right, especially when licenses, um, if they're movie licenses, for example, you're always up against the clock to get that out um, to tie in with the movies. Notable exceptions of that are, are Robocop, which we mentioned before, which was an absolutely classic game. And um, if you want to see a great video on not just movie licenses, but ocean licensed games, uh, Kim Justice brought out a video just last week, I think it was, covering every single licensed tie-in that Ocean released. Um, so that's well worth a watch. You've got over two hours of content there to really get to know the back catalogue and what Ocean was all about. So go and check wow. that out. We, we need to put a link to that in the show notes. And of course, another big licensed one was Daily Thompson's Decathlon, um, a track and field clone, which came out at the same time as the 1984 Olympics, where uh, Daily took the gold medal, thankfully, for those who made the game. It would have been a disaster if he'd flopped. But um took the gold he was a success and therefore the game was a success uh, with him the the old joystick destroyer as everyone knew it but funnily enough everyone says daily thompson's destroyed their joysticks but for me it was a game called jeff cape strongman which wasn't an ocean game <laughs> that's the game that destroyed joysticks for me <laughs> yeah 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 daily that's what super test one and two on this disc that they're very similar as well the, lots of joystick waggling yeah yeah and ocean of course you know they also released games for the super nintendo the n64 the pc you mentioned tfx there which was one of the first games i went out and bought when i first got my 486 pc i mean tfx was pushed hard um and that you know ocean would have been behind that they would have had good connections with the high street stores they they really knew how to sell a game and i remember my local dixons just had floor to ceiling tfx Florida, you know, they had more copies of that than any other game going. So, yeah, they were good at selling games. Um, and they had all these licenses, including they they had a licensed game for Frankie Ghost Hollywood. You know, they would license anything, anything that had a familiar brand, they would go for it. And um, uh, that's another example, Frankie Ghost Hollywood, of a, a licensed game that's actually rather good, surprisingly. So it seems a bit mad on the surface, but, um, you know, if, if we think about it, uh, the context of all these games and all of these licensing risks and um, experiments that they took, it's kind of interesting because it just reminds us that you and I come from a gaming background in the 80s and 90s where things were at times absolutely bonkers. Games were released every week that were based on franchises that you wouldn't ever imagine. Game concepts that just, where did that come from? genres came and genres went that were just people experimenting because i guess development was a, a slightly lower risk but as you were bringing on the cost of licenses into these things the risk increased because the amount of money involved increased but still companies like ocean took the risks and published the games and um when we get into those conversations sometimes about modern games and about so many sequels of call of duty and things like that um this is why this is why we get frustrated sometimes because we have that rich background of so many weird and wild and wonderful games that were attempted and um it's still out there in the indie game development scene you can still find them but boy do i miss the get the days when you could walk into a shop and see a frankie goes to hollywood game on the shelf you know or, or just wild games like that um i don't know yeah maybe i'm going back into the the same realms as i was with the conversation about music earlier and just showing my age <laughs> i don't know but i'm gonna make no apology for it chris yeah no i agree as you were talking there i'm thinking 
Yeah, it does kind of still exist, but then you mentioned the indie scene. I'm thinking about some of the, the bizarre games that my boys play, such as, I mean, they, they play the mainstream stuff like League of Legends and, and, and uh, Slipgate and all of that kind of thing. But then there's things like Stick Fight, um, which has <laughs> made its way onto things like the Switch and, and everything I know. But um, And Crawl is another one, which is a retro-style dungeon top-down dungeon crawler where if you die you play the ghost and you have to try and kill the one remaining human and things like that there's so many bizarre titles and they are constantly coming out all the time like they were back in the day but the difference is we can't go into the shop and just spend our time ogling the screenshots on the back of the the cassettes and the boxes and just our imagination filling in the gaps as to how awesome this game was going to be often only to be let down once we'd shelled out our pocket money well, remember um, remember but- you're talking about those games that actually had screenshots for many of them it was just based on <laughs> for example the incredible bob wakelin artwork that was on the front you're like well that must be yeah. an awesome game you know the reality so might have been and very the- different <laughs> And the description, yes, <laughs> the write-up, which was a bit like reading the back of a book and making a judgment as to what's going to be inside all 300 pages <laughs> based on two or three <laughs> paragraphs. No, it's exactly true. But yeah, I, I do miss those days, just being able to spend time on the way home from school, look at the back. But there was a lot of different games and, you know, not just from Ocean, you know, we've got a lot of publishers from around back then, Firebird and Mastertronics spring to, spring to mind. A really odd but fun title that I picked up. It would have been because it was in the bargain bin at Woolworths. This was for the Spectrum. It was a game called Park Patrol. Sorry, Park Patrol Park by Patrol. Firebird. Hmm. Yeah, and developed by Activision for the Spectrum. Bizarre game. And I can't tell you why, other than the fact that I could afford it. It was like one ninety nine or whatever. But you play a park keeper and there's ants trying to steal all the food in the park. And there's the, the park bit of the park and then there's a river and you can get in a boat. I can remember some bits. The moment I realized you could get in a boat and get away from the ants that way changed the whole game. One of those games went, what the heck have I bought? And then you then you get that little bit deeper into it and it becomes more fun. So that was a really weird. But who, who, who invents a game about a park keeper being chased by giant ants stealing food? It's But that's what they did back then. Um Probably the I most swear, surprising. Sometimes they, they base these games, I swear, on on what they were capable of drawing with pixels. They're like, okay, I can draw oh, an ant. Possibly, I can draw a, a boat. Right, let's let's work around a game around that. <laughs> yeah, but we could have those discoveries back then. Another one that springs to mind again from the bargain bin was Turbo Esprit. So not Lotus Turbo Challenge, but Turbo Esprit by Jarrell on the Spectrum, which we've mentioned before as being mm-hmm. sort of like GTA before GTA GTA was even around. An entire city to to explore and again buyers regret the first time i fired it up and then once i understood the game and got more into it it was an amazing game and cost me you know 199 or 299 of my hard-earned pocket money but you know even just within ocean's list you know i wouldn't say they were a go-to name for simulation but we've both just talked about you know tfx and titles like that weclamon to me um it really showed what the Spectrum was capable of in terms of a competent driving game. I absolutely loved that port. and So fast, so slick and challenging. It was only three laps of one track. But I remember the day I eventually proved to my mates, I didn't own the game. They owned it. I kept borrowing it off them. And I said, I've beaten it. I've beaten it. And they were like, you can't beat this. And I had to prove to them on their own machine. Yes, you can beat it. And this is how you do it. Um F29, you know, on the Atari ST, just, just you know, from one publisher, just such a massive range of games. I think we've, yeah, I'll, there's lots I could say on that, but I think for me, going right back to Batman the movie, okay, yes, it's a movie tie-in, and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. 
I'd argue that's one that absolutely did work, and it remains one of my favourite Amiga games of all time. Not just because of the nostalgia attached to the fact that it came with the Batman pack, which is the pack I bought, but it's just I loved it as a game. And it had variety within that game. You had two platform levels in terms of the first and last level. You had two sprite scaling levels in terms of the the Batmobile and the Batwing levels, which are the second and fourth. And then right slap bang in the middle, you had the most annoying level ever created with that stupid puzzle where you had to work out the the chemical formula to beat the Joker's poison or whatever it was. Um, But, you know, within one game, you essentially had three games and they did a a similar thing with Robocop as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Who else was doing that kind of thing back in the day? Yeah, I've just got a list of games here from Ocean in front of me. And, you know, three, I'm going to pick three that stand out from this massive list. So I've got Robocop, of course. I'm going to go with, um, I'm going to go with New Zealand Story, a Taito game that they mm. published. Um, because I remember when I first got my Amiga, I got Amiga Format Issue 1, and that was the demo on the cover disc. And I played it to death and I thought, wow, this is like a real arcade. It's amazing. <laughs> so I'm glad that they brought that to our, our shores. Um, and is there anything more ocean than Lost Patrol? You know, iconic artwork, the ocean logo on the front, a moody soundtrack, uh, an experimental kind of gameplay. I'm going to put that right up there as well. You know, it wasn't the best game in the world, but boy, did that game have some atmosphere. So um, there's some choices, but, you know, just look up Ocean Software on Wikipedia and there's a huge list of games that you can look through. And I'm sure all of us have got some memories associated with Ocean Software over the years. And because of that, it is with um, sadness and and with a lot of gratitude uh, for his work that we say goodbye to David Ward and uh, we wish all of his family and friends all the very best. And we say thank you for the games, David. Neil, I um, I recall you saying you were a fan of Duke Nukem 3D, just like any sane person. Um, <laughs> but I also recall, like myself, you're in a group that little that's a little bit more niche, and that is those that actually, um, shall I use the word, enjoyed, in inverted commas, the eventual Ooh. game that we got under the title of Duke Nukem Oh, Forever. yes. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. I did. I did. Yeah. I make, you know, I tried to hide it. I enjoyed it for what it was. Yeah, it wasn't bad. You know, after all these, we did actually end up with a game <laughs> under yeah. that title, at least. And I, I think it wasn't bad. I, I enjoyed it, start to finish on the PS3, first of all. And I have it again on the Xbox 360, simply because, my PS3 is long gone and we now have an Xbox 360 again. So I, I bought it for that. And then I spotted it on eBay and rebought it again for PC. But anyway, let's not talk about my obsession with Duke Nukem forever. <laughs> um, but it wasn't really the 3D Realms game we'd anticipated back in the day. You know, it was 14 years late. It was finally released by Gearbox Software. And it would have been, I would imagine, quite far removed from the initial intention. So, Neil... Were you, like myself, were you one of those people that was eagerly looking at screenshots online, emerging of Duke Nukem Forever way back in the day, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, following the ever-changing choice of game engine and the online developer blogs and the occasional screenshot leaks? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the original Duke came out in 1996, and I don't think it took us too many years to decide that this was clearly in development hell. Um, You know, after five years of waiting for it probably safe to come to that conclusion there are problems here you know if you're going to capitalize on this franchise that you've created you should be doing it by now you know it would be unheard of really 
as I'm saying this, I'm thinking Top Gun, but it'd be unheard of not to bring out the sequel to a movie. <laughs> Here we are, just wait, <laughs> waiting for the next Top Gun. So I've just so disproven true. myself then. But, you know, that's the exception to the rule. Um yeah, so, you know, five years, you think there's a problem here. After 10 years of waiting in 2006, it's pretty obvious where this is going. Uh, so when it was released after 14, 15 years after the original, I must admit I was surprised to see that it finally managed to make something, anything, to get anything released whatsoever. Um, and there is no way, absolutely no way, that the game that came out was going to be anything like the game that started being developed in 96. I was under no illusions there. And I would love to know just how many times this game was scrapped and restarted and scrapped and restarted and rewritten. And was the storyline the same from the start? Did it evolve over the years? So much must have changed. There must be, you know, a good two hour documentary in this. If you could get the right people involved who are not under NDA, who could tell us all the gory details. I'd love that one day. That would be really cool, and especially the storyline aspect. Um, you know, what was the original intention by yeah. 3D Realms, and and how close was the game, or how far was the game that we eventually ended up with? The funny thing is, I mean, when I got it for the PS3, I remember I was in a shop over here called JB Hi-Fi, just out as I sometimes was. I think it was a Thursday evening, late night shopping. And I just saw it on the shelf. And I hadn't seen, this is so many years later, I wasn't looking out for it. At that point in my life, I wasn't reading any media about what games were emerging or anything. I had no clue that it was going to resurface. And there it was actually on the, and I actually couldn't believe it. I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> and I remember I picked it up. I'll, I'll try and find the photo. I'm sure I've got it on a hard drive. But Duncan, I've got a, I know there's a picture somewhere of me holding it in my hand because I had to take a photo of it <laughs> and I sent it to a friend of mine who was also a gamer called Mike. And I bought it because I thought it, it just had that feeling of if I don't actually buy this and take it home, it's going to disappear again. And then gone will be the chance to ever play Duke Nukem <laughs> forever. So that's how I grabbed hold of it. But, um, you know. Basically, there are murmurings of the original version of Duke Nukem Forever finally getting leaked to the public in its current form. So we're talking the version that was shown off at E3 in 2001. So this is the version that they made using Unreal 1 engine, mm -hmm. rather than I think it was it the Quake 2 engine they were using before. Uh, well, depending on which day of the week you were talking about. So Control-Alt-Reese has linked us to a story on Duke4.net, which details the source of the rumor. There's a guy called X or X0. Uh, I'm going to pronounce this Zor. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. X, X is a Z. So Zor has posted on 4chan, um, and he's promised to leak the source code in June with instructions on how to compile it and run the code. The story includes some screenshots and quite, actually quite a few videos of the game in use that are all uh, available on YouTube now as well. And as well as um, uh, basically there's some quotes that I'll, I'll quote in the story from Zor himself that detail things like the fact that this is the Unreal 1 version, um, like the final game would have been. There is no complete game because it was never finished. The theme, as in the theme tune, is it says just the Megadeth version. I don't know why we need the word just in there because that's an awesome rendition <laughs> of the title. I had that as my um, 
on my phone as my wake up alarm for a while. What is it? <laughs> a a mega death cover of the grab bag theme tune from the original, is it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah, no lyrics are obviously just yeah, Duke Nukem theme tune as I call it, and off you go with some heavy guitars, some heavy drums, heavy everything. It's absolutely fantastic. And um probably the most important detail he's got there is the fact that the strippers can be seen and interactive with when you first enter the club. So there you go, it's all there, all the game elements. Um scrolling through the story though and especially the screenshots and the footage and it's bizarre but this for me was another nostalgia hit this felt like i was back in the 90s and early 2000s reading a developer blog and being teased with screenshots all over again even i've already played the final game even though as discussed it's probably not the same and here i am being teased in exactly the same way and the emotions have come back in exactly the same way it's really weird so my worry here though neil is will it be followed by silence and a lack of eventual substance just like last time oh that, that is the worry because um it's it strikes me as odd that he hasn't released it straight away he's sitting on it and he's, mm. he's setting a deadline for when he's going to release it and you can't help but feel you know this being 4chan as well you can't help but feel maybe he's just going to string us along and that day might come and and, and go I don't know. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of evidence posted by him. You know, I'm sure he wouldn't have gone to the lengths of, of faking this footage in the way that we're seeing it. It's got to be legit, surely. I don't know. Yeah. Um, my fingers are crossed, though. For you, if for no one else, Chris, I need this to be real for you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, am I actually going to try it? That's, that's the thing. But yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe we are revisiting the exact same past. I've done some digging and, you know, beyond the story that was posted. And this story is also covered on Polygon.com by Owen Good. Um, and he quotes a tweet from former 3D Realms co-founder George Brizard. And basically, George doesn't know who's leaked the code, but he confirms that it looks legit. No, he's in um, on it. But he's in on the joke. <laughs> he, he might be. He might. Well, he he's actually shut down one of the the tweet you know discussions because obviously people start then getting narky and blaming him for the everything, right. blah blah blah. So he's actually shut the whole thing down. But he he has already confirmed it's legit. He did warn though to temper expectations as there's no real gameplay. It's just a smattering of barely populated test levels is that's sure. what he believes is there and that fits in with what zor has said himself as well in terms of there's no complete game um what i like to think about though is i mean we've played the version that eventually came out that was okay um i feel it was tempered by what i th think made it so different from the original duke 3d is no fault of the developers or the publishers that eventually got hold of it but just a time that the time that gaming was at you know when it came out in terms of games became more story driven when you think about duke 3d it was just a fast-paced shooter with a hint of a storyline loosely tying things together but it didn't get in the way at all whereas by the time we get into the the you know the, the year that uh, duke nukem forever eventually came out a lot of games were you know really being held down by story writers and cut scenes which are the bane of gaming in my in you know <laughs> my opinion just interrupting the flow um so i don't think you know I, I know a lot of people didn't like it i think those are part of the reasons why it came out in the way that it did so what would this have been like if it came out in say 2001 or 2002 and most importantly what was its competition at the time so let's say this thing was completed we all love duke nukem 3d fast-paced shooter 
what would this have looked like? Well, the first person shooters that came out around 2001 include, we've already discussed it this week, Halo was one of them. Mm-hmm. Halo, great storyline, but again, I don't feel it was really hindered by things like cutscenes and story writers and stuff, even though they were clearly integral to the flow of the game. Return to Castle Wolfenstein, one of my all-time uh, favorite first-person you've, you've got to say that in the same way that Dave says it. Wolfenstein. Wolfenstein. <laughs> Wolfen. Richard. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. So there was that. <laughs> and again, same thing. There's, there's, there's a good solid storyline. There's the occasional cutscene, but certainly doesn't get in the way. Tribes 2 apparently came out 2001. Not played that. There you go. One game Chris hasn't played this week. Um, Alien vs. Predator 2. So the PC version we're talking about here. I know you, you're a fan of that, Neil. Mm-hmm. And Red Faction. So that's the competition that would have been around if that this thing had been released. So yeah, how do you think it would have held up? Lots of good, stiff competition there. And the, the one thing that I remember about the Duke Nukem Forever that did come out was that it it did feel kind of dated. Um, not, in the, not just in the tech. It held its own on the PC that I had. But just in the approach, it did feel like a slightly old-fashioned approach because of the way other games presented themselves at the time. I didn't have a problem with that uh, because one kind of line from Duke Nukem just said out loud as you're playing can do a hell of a lot more than a two-minute cutscene in other games, you know? Just an off-the-cuff line yeah. from, from Duke is all you need sometimes. But the big difference was, if we're talking about 2001, 2002, around about there, this is when we were coming into the era of the big multiplayer games. So, for example, Halo. For example, um, uh, Battlefield 1942. Uh, that was 2002. So, you know, uh, less than a year later than Duke would have come out. Duke Nukem Forever would have come out. Um, combined with what I mentioned earlier, ADSL becoming readily available, broadband readily available in the home in UKs at that period. And I was a huge um, player of the Rainbow Six games back then. I was in a clan and we would all, you know, meet up online and take on other clans and and just have huge, fun multiplayer experiences, particularly with Battlefield, where it was like 32 players all at once. So um, Duke Nukem Forever, very much a, a single player experience. I'm sure it would have had a solid multiplayer element, but you can't have 32 people all as Duke Nukem fighting each other. That would be that would be madness. You know, the point of Duke Nukem is you feel like you're Duke Nukem. You're you're the guy. You're the man. You know, <laughs> and uh, it's all about that single ex- single player experience rather than you know 32 Spider Men all pointing at each other on a map. <laughs> that doesn't work for me. <laughs> so, um, however. Uh, what did happen in 2001 is that the original Xbox was released in this year. So I think there could have been a perfect storm and a perfect pairing if the Xbox came out and maybe Duke Nukem Forever was, at least for the first couple of years, uh, maybe an Xbox exclusive. Um, I think that might have done well. You know, Remember, the Xbox had the Duke joypad as well. You know, it, just t- it all ties together yeah. perfectly. And you could have maybe had a four-player split-screen co-op mode or something like Maybe Duke could have had a little team that comes with him. I think that might have been the perfect storm if it was ready in 2001. Yeah, just my thoughts. Nice, yeah. Yeah, that would be good. Duke with the Duke controller. I, like. I, I was a big fan of the Duke controller. Mm. Yeah, that was mine. Everybody else got the small ones, the, the S controllers. Um, I, I did actually used to play Duke Nukem 3D multiplayer, but only because I created my office where I worked, three-story office, in Duke build. 
And so me and a mate would ju- juke it out during lunchtimes, which was good fun. Um, I've just mentioned a story quickly. My friend Keith over at the Swindon Computer Museum, he did the same. He recreated his office in Duke. Yes. But he went a step further. And I think he's put a video on YouTube about this. He presented it at work as part of something um, whereby <laughs> you went into the offices and you basically went postal in the office. And of course, the HR department pulled him to one side and said, ah, I think I think that might be a little bit inappropriate. Okay. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't be bringing that kind of thing into work. <laughs> These stories, years, he, he would have been locked up if he did that today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so true. And, and this is exactly so similar to what happened to me. So my boss suddenly came up, saw me playing, and I explained well, it's lunchtime, and I'm playing against James upstairs, and I hope that's okay. And he saw it, and I, I, I taught, gave him a tour around the office in Duke Nukem 3D. <laughs> and his response was, he said, "Oh, can you? We've got the the sales um, the sales guys are having like a training conference. Could you set this up on like a mini network so they can all play it in the breaks?" <laughs> was, <laughs> it was fantastic. So yeah, it actually went down really well. We didn't end up doing that, but the idea was put forward. Yeah, yeah. it was really cool. Oh, nice. Good to good to know. I'm not the only one that was virtually going postal in my office. <laughs> but yeah, oddly, the original Duke Nukem 3D was technically an underdog when it came out, so it was released the same year as Quake. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're, they're chalk and cheese, but the, it had the gameplay and it had a compelling story, that, but one that didn't get in the way of the game. And it just had bags of character and humor. And I, I can't think of many first-person shooters that had what Duke Nukem 3D had. Um, but you know, talking about this leak of Duke Nukem Forever. It's odd to get nostalgic about frustration and bitter disappointment, but here we are reliving the exact same nightmare. Um, I'm happy we did eventually get a game under the title, uh, and it seems that you know both of us enjoyed it, and I'm sure at least 15 other people did. But you know, if you do want to see the game uh, that would have eventually come out, you know, and see what it looked like in Unreal Engine One, then simply wait until June when a person called Zor or Xor who hangs out on 4chan will drop some code for you to compile and run on your home computer. What could possibly go wrong? We come now on to our community question of the week. It's been quite a long show this week, actually, Chris. It just goes to show that if I have a week off, I've got too much to talk about when I come back. So I <laughs> need to stop doing that. But uh, our community question of the week from... Um, now, we're going back two weeks ago, aren't we? Because we had to record a little yes. earlier with Dave last week. So we're a bit out of kilter. But the um, the question of the week that we last asked was... Um, it was all based around using your VHS recorder to record gaming. And what is the earliest recording of a game or system that you ever did? How did you capture it? Was it RF into the VHS? Was it a camera pointed at the screen? How did you do it? Who did you show it to? And did they stop being your friend soon after? Do you have the footage? And are you ready to share it with the world? So let's jump over to um, Reddit for the answers. And um, I've got the first one here, which is at the top, comes from G uh, Skizzers. Gee, skizzers. Uh, says, uh, probably my earliest recording was an Atari 2600 Junior back in 86. At the time, this was done through RF, of course, to a Betamax video. No newfangled VHS for us. Sadly, said Sanyo VCR, which was huge, had a recurring problem of chewing up tapes. So we gave it away to some electronics repair guy to fiddle around with. I seriously doubt that any such beta tapes survived uh, the recording. Um, and since I have no Betamax VCR anymore um i i cannot see what the tapes have them on them anyway i don't think i did this to show it to anybody it was more as of a test to see if it could be done 
Um, it goes on to say that he's got some video that he took of Target Renegade on the Amstrad CPC using a camcorder um, in the early 90s and probably still has that on video eight tape or whatever they were called, he mm. says in brackets. We didn't use to erase them. So um, there you go. That footage may still exist out there of um, Target cool. Renegade. Yeah. If it, if it had sound, it was probably Super 8. I think Super 8 was the Super format I was probably thinking of. Yeah. Um, yeah, whereas standard 8 mil didn't have sound. Cool. So the next one's from Lobster McGee. I got my NES in Christmas 1988 when I was 11 and connected to the family TV via RF. The next Christmas, we got a VCR, and I noticed that the red and yellow jacks on the side of the NES matched the red and yellow jacks on the new VCR. That's how it happens for most of us. Wonder if these will work. Yeah. <laughs> so I hooked them up, and I was immediately impressed by how much better the image looked on the TV versus the RF adapter signal. Uh, since I was now running through the VCR, I wondered if I could record it. So I popped in a tape, booted up Mega Man 2, and was delighted to find that I could record my gameplay. I did this for a few weeks, using up all of the blank tapes <laughs> that the family had. God, yeah. And was told by my mum I could only use one tape from now on and had to re-record over it once I could, oh, once no. it got full. Oh, we all had that experience, didn't we? Um, I used that tape until it was so worn that the image was unwatchable. I wish I had it, uh, but I believe it went to the great garage sale in the sky in the early 2000s when my parents dumped all of our old tapes. Oh. Yeah. Paul, a.k.a. Hermski, has the third and final answer this week. He says, I remember in the mid to late 70s using a Binatone console. I was, a very I was very young at the time, and I can recall my granddad being really impressed with it. He loved new tech. He had one of those Cine Super 8 cameras with 8mm film reels. Film was very valuable back then, and I remember him carefully working out how to spend the three-minute reel for the weekend. He ended up taking about 20 seconds of us playing on the console. From what I remember, it came out a bit grainy with a lot of flickering playing back on a big white screen. I don't think the camera could keep up with the TV. The recording was all done in black and white, but that didn't matter as the Binatone was also black and white, and so was the TV, come to think of it. We still have those old reels stored at my mum's, and I'm now motivated to try and convert them to DVD. Hang on, isn't DVD nice. a retro format in its own right now? <laughs> just put them straight on your hard drive, mate, or just upload Get them, them on to YouTube. YouTube. <laughs> yeah, but no, that's a I've really done nice eight mil, story. I've done eight mil to DVD, and how I did it was lock focus and just project onto the wall and record the wall. It's the easiest way. Really? Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you, cool. everyone, for submitting your questions. And uh, Chris, do we have a question of the week for this week? We certainly do. So, yeah, you know, in light of the bad news um, from the past couple of weeks, do you have oceans of memories for Oceans games is what we'd like to know. What were your favourite? Which systems were they for? Were they the exception to the rule that any game based off a movie is terrible? Because I think Ocean really did break that rule. Was your system Oceans branded by way of the pack-in titles? Let us know in the subreddit. Yep, and that is over at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. Come and uh, submit your, um, your answers to the community question of the week or simply take a look at the stories that people have submitted for the week, upvote them, downvote them, let us know what you want us to talk about in the next show. And uh, that next show coming soon featuring dave for a slightly different yes. dynamic to the future shows and i'm really looking forward to doing that next week so uh, hopefully you'll tune in thanks for listening everyone take care thanks this week in retro was presented by neil thomas from rmc cave 
from Chris Winter from 005 and Gima. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.